dear me. <laughs> we'll get to that in a bit. <laughs> okay, we, um, we're continuing to look through 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're jumping ahead. Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, and uh, we've skipped 1 Corinthians 13. That's going to be um, spoken about next week by um, a visiting speaker. But 12, 13, and 14 go together because Paul is addressing um, a particular issue in Corinth. If you know that Corinth has got a lot of division in it, and the one he's addressing in 12, 13, and 14 is about spirituality and its uses and abuses. So in chapter 12, just to recap if you, if you weren't around, Paul looks at the whole spiritual practice that's going on at Corinth. And he's emphasizing that there are different gifts, but the same Holy Spirit. Speaking to someone last week, it was a great um, phrase that they used, that the gifts were to the church, but they were tools to the individual. They're not a way of rewarding good behavior, and their all purpose was for the common good of the church. And we looked at last week the danger of comparisonitis, the danger that we can look at ourselves and think that I'm better or I'm worse than someone else because of the giftings that we've got. And Paul tries to totally mitigate against that. That's what was happening in Corinth. And he was saying, we are all parts of the body, all are needed. There's no room for inferiority complexes or for arrogance. And then he finishes that chapter by moving on and saying, I will show you the most excellent way to live. And he goes on to one of the most famous chapters chapter 13, which will be explained more next week. But suffice to say that the whole purpose of that is it doesn't matter what gift, role, or ability you have. If it is without love, it is, if it's without agape, that strange Christian Christ-like love, which is all self-sacrificial, if it's without that, then whatever gift, whether dramatic or mundane, it just makes a cacophonous noise that is useless if you do not have as a fundamental foundation, agape, love, as the fuel. And so he repeats this at the start of chapter 14. He says, pursue the way of love. Really go after the way of love and then desire spiritual gifts. So everything that's said this morning about spiritual gifts must have an underpinning foundation that all things are demonstrated and done from the place of agape, love, which we'll look at in a bit. Now, we're going to be looking particularly at um, tongues and prophecy, but it's important, and there's obviously clearly some slightly difficult bits of this passage as well. We need to remember this, and this is really important. This is a letter to a specific church in a specific place at a specific time, Corinth in the first century, to a specific cultural makeup of Greeks, of Romans, a strange mixture of religion and politics all coming together in a melting pot, and it's got a specific set of issues. That's what this letter is being sent to, okay? That's what we need to remember, and the issues that he's facing, that Corinth is showing, is immorality. We've looked at that already. There are factions, and there are favorites. There are people following one teacher, one following another. There are divisions in the camps. There are tensions, ethnically and theologically. There's abuse of the Lord's Supper, the central meal of, of, of worship. The rich people were going in first because they didn't have to go to work. They were stuffing themselves, and there was nothing left for those who were coming after their work to join in with the, with the Lord's Supper. There was disorder, there was dodgy theology going on, and there was a heavy influence of pagan theology. That's the context that Paul is speaking to in this letter, and we need to have that in the back of our minds throughout all this 
Otherwise, we start making rules for eternity that God didn't mean to happen. So we know that Corinth had these issues. But the thing is, even though there was order and there was, there was chaos, it was a really exciting place. It was an incredibly spiritual place. There's no way that you'd be thinking that Corinth was a boring church. It wasn't a kind of staid and, 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 and gray place. It was vibrant. It was full of life. It was really buzzing. And Paul's big issue that he's addressing here is about the corporate worship in Corinth. The fact that it was incredibly disorganized. There was a lack of order. It was, frankly, chaotic. Now, I've been known to not have the most tidy of offices. And someone actually had the heinous cheek to once say that I was disorganized. I'm not disorganized. I'm just differently organized. I know exactly where that bit of paper is under three other piles at the back of the office. This is not about Paul saying he wants the churches to follow a particular order of service. And that's saying that one of the first things I asked Ella for today was for a running order to know what was happening. But Paul's not interested in the order of service, but he's interested in how things are being carried out. His concern is not about nice worship predictably following a published order. And he focuses, he zones in on spiritual gifts. Now, we've already set the record straight about the value of gifts. Each gift is valuable in God's sight and given to people according to his will. And we find out that the foundation has to be love. We've taken that. So now he focuses in on these two big gifts, tongues and prophecy. He focuses in on these two because obviously these were causing some havoc in the church in Corinth. It's clear that in Corinth, there was a major emphasis on the spiritual experience of speaking in tongues, and and particularly in this context, was the kind of um, unintelligible utterances that were coming from people. From the front, people were coming up and just speaking out in an unintellectual or unintelligible language. So I thought it was important for us to spend a little bit of time looking at what tongues are all about and what prophecy is all about. Because we don't get a chance to really speak about these gifts a great deal. And maybe it'll be useful for you to know where do we stand regarding gifts of the Spirit. Because these are sometimes divided churches. So let's have a look a little bit about the speaking in tongues. Sometimes it's easier to say what it isn't. But we'll start off with what is speaking in tongues. The Greek word is glossa, glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues, which is about languages. Now, I've got a particular thing about languages. If I go away to a foreign country, I feel that I have to have at least learn some of the language. Um, it's just one of those little things that I've got. It freaks me out when I go somewhere and I can't speak even hello or how are you doing, all that kind of thing. And one time, um, I was in, at my last sabbatical, went to Tanzania. And when we were in Tanzania, I learned a little bit of Swahili, you know, the, the words in the Lion King. You know what I'm talking about. Okay? So I learned a little bit of Swahili. It was lovely. It was really great. And uh, I got to talk to some friends in Swahili. It wasn't fluent, but I said a few things, and they appreciated it. And then same, the latter end of the sabbatical, um, a family member took us to Portugal for a, for a week, which was brilliant. So I tried to learn some Portuguese. So I went to the supermarket, and I went to the till, and I was checking out, and uh, as I finished, I said, with all confidence to this uh, lovely checkout lady, Asante sana, which is Swahili for thank you. <laughs> so this Portuguese woman kind of looking at me going, what are you on about? And then I realized that I'd spoken to her, not in Portuguese, but in an African language. Um, so that's the thing about languages, is that normally they can be comprehensible. 
And what happened, the first real um, experience of tongues that we have in the Bible is on Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples and they go out into the streets and, and they speak in tongues. And what do they speak in tongues? They, they proclaim the glory of God. They don't preach in tongues. They proclaim the glory of God. And then the people standing around from Persia, from um, other, other places around, say we hear them speaking in our languages. They could identify it. So sometimes tongues can be a human language. A number of years ago, and I've checked, Helen says I can embarrass her. Helen Parsons um, was, uh, I think it was your leg was really bad, wasn't it? And uh, you were sitting over there, if I remember. And uh, Helen Sellers came and said, can I pray for you? And Helen Sellers started, it's really annoying that you're both called Helen, by the way. <laughs> so Sellers goes to Parsons, can I pray for you? Feels like private school, doesn't Sellers goes to Parsons. And, uh, and Sellers prays in tongues over, over Parsons. And, uh, and it goes on, and it's really beautiful. And afterwards, whenever the prayer is over, Parsons turns to Sellers and says something like, do you realize you've been praying over and over again, beautiful Lord in Nepalese? Helen was a missionary in Nepal for many years. So God didn't just say to her, I'm with you but I specifically am with you because this person who's never learned Nepalese has spoken to you in a language that only you would understand in this context. That's real. It wasn't in a book that was but a story reported by three other people. That's happened here. You can talk to Helen afterwards about it. Sometimes tongues can be a human understandable language. Sometimes, as we learned in 1 Corinthians 13, it can be the language of angels is what is talked about. And it's not recognizable. I remember the first time I ever heard this angelic language of speaking in tongues. I was about 15 at a worship event. And uh, we were praying for this girl who was a witch, as you do. And, uh, and my friend Craig started, just words, really weird words started coming out of his mouth. And afterwards, I said, what were you doing? And he said, I was speaking in tongues. I'm like, I've never heard of that. That's really cool. <laughs> I want some of that. And so we prayed about it, and the Lord blessed me. If about a week or so later on St. Patrick's Day, I, I experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I was shaking, and I was crying. It was beautiful. And I, I spoke a few words in tongues. It was, it was great. Um, but I know that it can cause some people some disturbance whenever they hear it, and it's caused some fear. And I wanted to try and debunk that a little bit. Tongues is not the only gift of the Spirit. It is also not the most important gift of the Spirit, which is sometimes what you pick up. It is also not necessary to equal that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit equals I can speak in tongues. Those are things that have built up over the years. It's not true. It is a sign of the Holy Spirit moving in someone. Sometimes it's, um, it accompanies the experience of the Holy Spirit and the more overtly supernatural or dramatic elements of it. It builds up the individual speaker because actually it's a prayer language. And Paul highlights this in this passage. He says, the person speaking in tongues speaks from themselves to God. It's their heart, your soul speaking to God's heart. And that's why it says it bypasses the mind. It's not easily recognizable. And Paul notes here in 1 Corinthians 14 to 2 that it speaks from, God, from the person to God. It's one of many ways of praying which builds a person up. And it's for whenever words just aren't enough. Anyone who's had a toddler who's still learning to speak 
knows that frustration when they want to tell you something and they're going, da, 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 and you go, I don't know what you're saying. And, you're, and, they're, and the frustration's really palpable. There was a, a movie a number of years ago called Roxanne. I don't know if you've seen it. It's Steve Martin. It's, uh, it's about the Serrano de Bergerac. It's updated. And at one point, he's wooing his, his darling who's in a, in a balcony above her, and he's hiding below. And he says, how can I use the word love to describe what I feel for you when I use that word to describe how I feel about fried chicken or my, my car? It, words are not enough. How can we use our limited language to fully describe the awe and wonder and glory of God with the same words and phrases that we might use to talk about our favorite football team or a gift that someone's given us or an appreciation of food that was awesome? Can we say that that chicken cordon bleu was awesome and the next day talk about God being awesome in the same category? Even if we're talking about people who we love and dearly, can we use the same word for the creator of the universe? The gift of tongues has been helpful for some people to enable praise and worship without the limitations of language. But it's not just in the good times, but times of anxiety, worry, pressure when we don't know what to pray. One particular experience of this for myself was when Helen um, was giving birth to our daughter, Neve. And uh, there were some complications and and she had to be rushed into emergency C-section. And so I was told this was happening, go and get into your George Clooney outfit, you know, the medical scrubs, so you can come in and hold her hand during the procedure. So I did that, got changed, came to the door, and the nurse of the surgeon said, I'm sorry, you can't go in. They've already started the procedure. So my wife is going under the knife with a really quite a risky procedure at that point, and I hadn't been able to tell her I loved her. I hadn't been able to hold her hand or say it'll be okay or anything. I was a complete and utter mess. So I was in the waiting room. There was no one else there. I felt despondent alone. I was despairing. I was imagining what would that conversation be if Helen didn't make it and I've got to speak to my twin boys. It was horrible. I couldn't put into words before God how I felt the only thing I could do, not from some kind of superior spirituality or piety, was to cry out in tongues to God. It was the only thing that could put into words the despair that I was feeling at that time. Sometimes people use tongues to pray for others because sometimes, Lord, bless this person just isn't enough. And God knows what it is. It says in Romans that the Spirit himself intercedes for us. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through us, praying the prayers that need to be prayed that we just don't understand. The gift of tongues is an important one, but it's not the be-all and end-all. It's important to talk about tongues because sometimes it can be confusing, unknown, maybe even scary. And sometimes with the lack of general lack of tongues being used in the churches at large, and maybe sometimes from reading this passage, you may get an idea that it's, there's something wrong with it or something not very good. Well, actually, let me put that to bed. It is a good thing. It can be a sign of the work and move of the Holy Spirit. It will not be given if it is not desired. The Holy Spirit does not invade and over, overtake our, our capacity. But there is an encouragement from Paul here to seek gifts like this. He, in fact, says, I wish all of you could speak in tongues. That's not an expectation It's a hope, not because it means you're spiritual, but because it's another tool that can build you up with God. The disciples spoke in tongues. We saw that in Pentecost. Paul spoke in tongues more than any of these people in Corinth. New Testament converts, when they experienced the Holy Spirit, engaged in speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, Paul encourages people to do so. We want to say as a church, we do not think the gifts of the Spirit stopped after Pentecost or the New Testament. Gifts of the Spirit are still 
and have been throughout the entire history of the church. And they're still alive and well today. So it wasn't the fact that people were speaking in tongues, but it was how they were speaking was the issue in Corinth. Because it is a personal gift, but what was happening, people were going up to the front and spouting off in tongues. And then people were, other people were doing it from the, from the middle of the congregation, then someone else. It was just a disordered mess. Whilst personally and privately it can bring a sense of God, strength of his power, it'd be useful in intercession and worship, it can also be damaging when people speak out and there's no interpretation. At our church weekend over in Whitby, um, I was leading a worship session, maybe some of you were there, remember? And Leroy Botel prayed or spoke out in tongues. And Rob White, who was a speaker at the time, sat back and thought, let's see how Phil handles this then. <laughs> I said, thanks very much, Rob, for that. And so we waited, and then someone shared an interpretation. Now, interpretation is not a direct translation. It's not a word-for-word -word thing, which is why sometimes someone may speak in a tongue, and the interpretation could be longer or shorter. If, if speaking in tongue is a prayer from you to God, then the interpretation is the Holy Spirit's response to that prayer. It could be saying this is what that person was praying, or it could be God's response to that prayer. And that's why it isn't a tit-for-tat, that word equals that. That's why it's important to wait for the interpretation. Because the problem in the Corinthian church was that these tongues were at a major focus of demonstrating spirituality. You can see it, can't you? That person, we even do it maybe now, if someone speaks in tongues, you kind of go, oh, they're very spiritual. They must be really good. And Paul's got an issue with this because it wasn't building up the church. This chaotic, loud, ecstatic, and lots of people speaking in tongues seemed spiritual, but it was actually really similar to some of the Greek um, mystery religions that were around, like Mithraism and Kibbaleism. Is it coming on, Esther, there? And these, um, it is coming, behaving itself. These mystery religions, they had esoteric rites. They had wild and chaotic acts of worship. And so the church was starting to reflect that a bit too much. The loudest voice would be winning. It was lacking something. And the thing that it was lacking, is it not working, Esther? I will. There we go. See if it's behaving itself. There we go. Yeah, there was the mystery religions. The differences between experience and explanation. The Corinthian church was great on experience. In fact, today, the church is good on experience. We want experiences, don't we? We're less hot on explanations, and certainly the Corinthian church wasn't. They liked the people at the front having a buzz, having a high, but the explanation was a little bit looked down upon. And Paul is saying we need that explanation. We need that frame of reference about what is going on, the teaching that builds people up, because Paul's desire was for the church to be built up. It was for the church to grow. In 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about the church in Corinth being spiritual babies. He wants them to grow to maturity. He then says in this chapter seven times the word edify. The word edify comes from a Latin word edificio, which means building. He wants the church to be built up to its full potential, growing in maturity. And in corporate worship has a real responsibility in doing that. And tongues may be impressive at the front, but it's not instructive. And here is where Paul compares prophecy and the gift of tongues. So let's look at what prophecy is all about. This is what prophecy is not. It is not a crystal ball predicting the future, although future can have an impact on prophecy. 
It is not a light bulb moment of inspiration. Someone says, aha, God speaks. This is what he says. Although it can be. It is also, although you can't see it, someone standing there, doom and gloom, saying the end is nigh. You are judged. It is also not equal to the testimony of the saints, as in Scripture. It is not equal to the Old Testament prophecies. This is the prophecy that might be shared amongst us. It is not equal to the testimony of the apostles or the Old Testament prophets. So we'll put a big cross through those two. Okay? This is a really good definition by Michael Green of what prophecy is. It is a word from the Lord through a member of his body, inspired by his spirit, and given to build up the rest of the body. That's a prophetic word. It doesn't seem as scary now, does it? That's what a prophetic word is. Another uh, definition is an explanation of the present in the light of a revelation from God. That's all the Old Testament prophets were. They saw a situation. They knew the Torah. They knew God's Spirit. They put them all together and said, this is what will happen if you don't follow this. They interpreted the present in the light of revelation from God. Personally speaking, when someone's asked me what's a prophecy, whenever I've experienced it, I say it's a thought I never thunked. <laughs> it's a thought that I couldn't have thought that God has put in my head. It doesn't need to be spontaneous, to be genuine. Often the spontaneous equals inspired, crafted equals a bit humanized. And I've been to meetings, perhaps you have as well, where the speaker, it's, it's, everyone says, oh, apparently he's ditched his notes. He's just going to speak off the cuff because he feels the spirit. And you're really impressed. They must be really holy. <laughs> Actually, that's not, a, a, that's not a reason for it to be impressed. Because I think the other week... Um, Lisa was going to be speaking about women wearing hats in church, wasn't she? And then she chickened out. No, she didn't chicken out. During the week before that, we were on the phone. I was down in London. We were talking about um, the fact that the Brexit result came out, and Lisa felt really strongly that she had to put the sermon on the hats aside, and she wrote a sermon. She actually wrote a sermon, not her PowerPoint thing. She wrote a sermon about Brexit. Now, a lot of you have read it. A lot of you have heard it. You know it was incredibly inspired. It wasn't just a good preach. I believe it was prophetic. It was Lisa speaking about the present situation for us in the light of revelation from God, as a prompt from God. It was crafted. It doesn't mean it wasn't inspired. And we've seen that that's been passed on to other people beyond our church. It's also one of the biggest hits on our, our kind of, um, what do you call it, sound cloud on the web, people listening to it. The prophetic is God's word to an instant situation. And what a prophecy has to do is it speaks to people for their strengthening, for their encouraging. The word is paraklesos, getting alongside. It's the same word as Holy Spirit. For their comfort, which is about whispering in the ear, saying it'll be okay. Do not fear. That's what prophecy and the words of prophecy are all about. And it's not just referring to preaching and teaching, which is what it's often been associated with when people have read this. Oh, what Paul's getting at is just preaching from the Gospels. Actually, no. Later on, he talks about preaching and teaching alongside prophecy. Preaching does need to have a prophetic edge. But any prophetic word which does not build up or which undermines an individual or elevates the prophet should be rejected. I had a dodgy experience a number of years ago. One guy that I knew, a young guy who had some experience, a little bit of experience sharing prophetic words, came to me one day in my office and said, Phil, I've got a prophecy for you. 
I've got a word, and that is that your sons, Jacob and Reuben, they're going to have a massive falling out. They're going to be distant from each other for a long time. But don't worry, they'll get back together again. I turned to this guy and said, you shut up. Don't ever give a prophecy like that to anyone again. Because it was wrong. It was destructive. He was just learning. And I, I have hope and faith that he will have gone on and, and prophesied. I know he has his gift of prophecy. We can make mistakes, but some of the criteria that we need about prophecy is about that it needs to be tested. It needs to be offered humbly. We had a friend, um, a woman called Heather, who was really experienced in sharing prophetic words. But yet, when she shared something, she would always say, "Um, I'm offering this to you. Maybe God could be saying this, but please go away and test it. Don't just take my word for it. Gone are the days of the prophet at the front saying, thus saith the Lord. I think God could be saying, will you go and test it? These are the criteria that we do for testing prophecy. You've seen maybe in this service, people come up and ask and whisper in mine or Lisa's ear, say, I think I might have a word. These are the kind of criteria that we try and assess when we hear what they've got. Does it glorify God or the person? Is it in accord with what the Bible says because we are subordinate to the Scriptures? Does it build others up or does it tear them down inappropriately? Is it spoken in agape? Is it spoken in love? Is this person submissive to the authority of this place, to the submission to Scripture? And if they're told no, will they go off in a strop? Are they in control or are they manic? Are they going on too long? I've seen people go up with a genuine word of prophecy and then go off and start spinning their own spin on it. And do they demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit? This is not asking for perfect people, but is this, con- is this consistent with the person's character who has spent time, who is familiar with the voice of God because they spend time in his presence? These are the criteria for prophecy because it's a potent gift. There is a need for the prophetic. There is an also need for, the, for tongues. The gift of tongues is an important individual gift and tool for the church. Spoken out loud in public, it needs to have an interpretation. Why? Because it has the same impact then as prophecy. People can join in. That's what this passage is all about. When you hear someone speak in tongues, it's great. God's spirit is moving. It doesn't necessarily build you up. And then someone gives a word to explain what God's saying. And that is a prophetic word to build you up. Paul is encouraging not just tongues and prophecy, although he was addressing the issue in Corinth at that time, but he encourages other gifts of the Spirit. Our desire is to see more of God's Spirit's gifts and tools at work in this place. The dramatic ones and the mundane ones, perhaps, if you want to think of it that way. So let's that's, that's realize there's no warrant, no biblical warrant for the cessation of gifts, and we need to be focused on not being childishly gullible, or being skeptically rational, but accepting that God still gives his gifts. Okay, I've delayed long enough. What about the women? Well, the reason I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this is not because I'm scared, although maybe a little bit. It's because when we come to women, it says, women, be silent. If we... um, you know, if we implement this, all I can say is the next week or the next time Lisa speaks, she won't be speaking. She'll be delivering her sermon through the medium of interpretive dance. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a bit of better. Okay. Okay. 
There's lots of different interpretations of what this verse could mean. It seems very blanket ban. This cannot be an outright ban on women and wives speaking in church because it contradicts 11 verse 5 where Paul talks about women preaching and prophesying in the church. It also goes against what is known of the common practice of of the New Testament church. There are plenty of female leaders, plenty of prophetesses. Philip's daughters were prophetesses. They weren't told to shut up. This is quite possibly about wives criticizing their husbands because in Jewish tradition in the synagogue, wives would be on one side of the room, men on the other. Wives wouldn't have had a great deal of liberty in religion. They were, they were have to be really silent. They weren't allowed to be included. This is a new freedom for women who were, who were being kept in a, in a corner for many years. It could be that they were just over-enthusiastic or they didn't have some of the background knowledge. So we had a woman over here Someone says, let's talk about the gift of tongues. She goes to her husband over there. Oi, Derek, what's he on about? Oh, darling, it's this. And she was going, I don't agree with that. And it was becoming disruptive because they didn't know what was going on. There was lots of different ideas about what this could mean. It's also suggested, maybe Paul is just quoting what the Corinthians thought. And because the next verse seems to kind of go against it. He says, what? So you have all revelation. Maybe he's quoting them. This is what you say, but you're wrong. This verse has been so badly taken out of context. We need to return it to its context. Because otherwise it's just badly placed, poorly, randomly included. It's meant to be informed by the surrounding context. What seems to me is that the main offenders, perhaps, in Corinth, who were disruptive in this particular context, who were speaking in tongues and hysterical without any interpretation who were interrupting during the service, were probably the wives of some of the men in the church. So when this letter is read out, Paul's saying women keep quiet in the church. Wives keep quiet in the church. The wives who are causing the disruption know exactly who he's talking to. This is not a universal command for the entire church. This is contextual, contextual, contextual to a specific church at a specific time in a specific context with specific issues. It does not reflect God's view of women or the position of women in church. Jesus says you'll know by their fruits where they come from. I've seen a lot of fruit from women speaking in churches. So let's put that to bed now. Instead, let's pursue all of us the gifts of the Spirit to build one another up, to pursue it, to eagerly seek prophecy, not neglect tongues, but to remember it's all for the building up of the church. Are you wanting that? I don't care if you're 20 years old, 40 years old, 60 years old, you've been a Christian for as many years. God may have something new for you. I spoke to a guy recently who's been a Christian for decades, never spoken in tongues. One night he couldn't sleep. He was up. He knew he couldn't get to sleep. He started praying, and he realized he couldn't understand what he was praying. He'd been a Christian and a minister for decades. God's not finished with you yet. So let's be open that God may want to give you something you've never experienced before. It may even be the gift of prophecy. It may be the gift of tongues. Ask the giver who gives good gifts, and he will give you what he thinks best for you and for the building up of his church. Amen? Amen. Let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the giver of good gifts and you want to bless us with things to build ourselves up in our knowledge and experience of you, but also in our knowledge 
and experience for each other to build others up. Almighty God, may we see your kingdom grow in each other's lives. Thank you for making us a part, have a part to play in each other's lives in doing that, Lord. And as we come together around your table, may we remember we stand on level ground before the cross. And it's because of the cross that you give us your gifts. So Lord, as we remember your greatest gift, your life on the cross for us, may we be open to receive you yet again by your spirit and open to say to you, Lord, give us whatever you want for the advancing of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.